Chapter 6 The Stables For its time, the bringing together of the craftsmen at one location was a new concept. The stables included carpenters, wheelwrights, blacksmiths, and a couple of stonemasons, coupled with the old flower master miller, a true one-stop shop for its day. Located near a number of streams, the stables gained the respect and admiration of many, from the local lords of the manor, through to farmers, and most importantly, had the blessing of both Athelney Abbey and Muchelney Abbey. The reputation of the stables crossed into eastern Somerset, Wessex, and beyond to Glastonbury and Wells. The families from the stables, now known throughout the land as the Stables of Ash Hill Forest, prospered with the younger family members all naturally progressing from apprentices to master craftsmen. Some of the younger men, including Arthur, of course, also Lancelot, Tristan, Percival, and Merlin, all became great friends, living along the same stretch of road, schooled, played, and worked together as one. Ash Hill Forest was an immense woodland and provided a wealth of timber, providing charcoal for the hungry furnaces and construction, broken by well-managed and cultivated areas of land. The highest point from the stables was just to the northeast, an open expanse of pasture with the uppermost position marked by a large smooth stone. The stone was a natural landmark and a well-established meeting point. Stories are told of Roman surveyors using the stone as a geographical point of reference. Surveying the landscape to the west and the Narosh Beacon, to the south and the Ilminster Beacon, and beyond to Ham Hill and the north toward the Five Head Beacon, and then the important trading route of the river Tone to the coast. In their early days, Arthur and his friends used to play tag on horseback in the open fields around the old stone. Two defending the stone while others tried to gain access. The stone was the goal, and whomever made it to the stone was safe. The first to touch the stone with his sword without being tagged by the other defenders won. Almost completely covered with ivy overgrowth, the stone was large with a footprint covering approximately 12 by 6 feet. The protruding stone stood 4 feet into the air, like the top of a small mountain or pyramid, an unusual smooth-to-touch cold red stone feature. More peculiar, due to a metal spike growing skywards from the centre of the stone. There you have it, a large stone with an upwardly pointing metallic extrusion covered with ivy. The long metallic spike is a likely legacy from past craftsmen. Galloping past on horseback, it rang out a distinctive ding when clipped with a sword. Target hit, loud ding, and a winner! Within the top of the stone next to the metal spike are two deep holes, about 5 inches in diameter with a depth up to the elbow. Used as an effective pestle with mortar in the past to crush and mix herbs for remedies and potions some say, by wizards or druids. It would not be unusual for wizards or druids to meet in such a remote location. It is true to say, everyone accepts that the location of the stone was a meeting place or settlement by our ancestors, lost in the fog and mystery of time. As newly appointed craftsman to the trade of smithy, Arthur is told that the Iron Age forges from the past used the stone holes to mould and forge wrought iron ingots wrought, from the term to reek, to bend or twist the iron. Then reheating the ingots within a furnace creating simple straps, hinges and horseshoes. Useful day-to-day -day technology of the day.
and of course, weapons. Furnaces producing charcoal and carbon-rich gases, combined with the iron, will leave nearly pure metal. It was the molten metal that was poured into a sand and clay mould. A mould made from crafted timber that was pushed into and then removed from the sand and clay mix. As time progressed, the craft of making stronger cast iron that was then smelted in furnaces with carbon was a new process for producing liquid iron. It was this early experimentation that probably happened at the stone. The hole in the stone was full of old sand and clay mix from the moulding process and this hardened over time, clinging on to the now oxidised metal spike. Perhaps the spike is an early material trial in crafting pure metal for steel sword production that clearly went wrong. Just one of the holes still contained this metal spike, with about 15 inches exposed to the air, with no idea how deep into the stone the remaining spike is sunk. All that we know, the spike is ridged, an oxidized addition as permanent as the stone itself. A hard and precious metal, combined with an unusual natural stone feature. 